For over a year, our men's Bible study, we meet on Wednesday mornings at 6.45 through 7.45. Just share that with you. We've been examining the books of First and Second Samuel with a specific interest in the life of King David. And I, I wanted to undertake this study because of what Scripture says about him, David, particularly in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 22. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. We've considered David's character and his actions and words in light of his relationship with God, and we've wrestled with a number of questions, including some of these, kind of the questions that set the stage for our study. What did David have that we should emulate? How can we become men after God's own heart as well? How can we demonstrate a testimony of heart walking amidst the struggles of life, the fallenness of the world, and even our own sin? And maybe most importantly, what, would David's, what does David's story reveal about God's own character, his nature? What does it reveal about the heart of God? Of course, these, these questions are not just pertinent to those men that have been in attendance in the morning, but they're relevant to every Christian man, woman, and child. They're relevant to everybody here in this room. And while we'll not be able to cover everything we've discussed in the past year in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel, we will for two Sundays, this morning and next week, we're going to specifically look at David's anointing in chapter 16 and then his encounter with Goliath in chapter 17. So that's, that's the plan. Let's now again go to the, word, the Lord of the Lord and look back at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 through 13. This is what the Lord says to Samuel. How long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he went to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man see looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel then said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? 
And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Jesse said to, or Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he, that's David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Indeed, thanks be to God. Let us now go to him in prayer. Father, we call upon you. We ask that you would feed us by your word, that you would tend to your sheep as the great shepherd. Lord, that you would reveal the truth of your word in this text this morning. And Father, as we receive this text, may we not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And we pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. The English idiom, don't judge a book by its cover, was first penned in the mid-1800s by an author named George Eliot. And that was further popularized in the mid-1900s by two other authors, Lester Fuller and Edwin Rolfe. Now, regardless of whether or not you've read the books from these men, or whether or not you know the history of this origin, all of us, all of us in this room, we're familiar with this phrase because it's part of our everyday American speech. The meaning of this idiom is straightforward. It implies that one should not judge the worth or value of someone or something solely by its outward appearance. And while all of us would agree in principle that this is a good thing not to do, we've also all wrongly made this mistake and we've judged people and others and we've done it based on the outward presentation alone. I did this in elementary school I literally did it with a book called The Hobbit. I was supposed to pick a fourth grade book report project. I was supposed to pick a book for this. However, instead of choosing The Hobbit, I chose a Hardy Boys book. And I chose the Hardy Boys book because the graphics on that cover were way cooler than the dirty, plain, orange library binding on The Hobbit. Poor Tolkien. When I finally read The Hobbit in middle school, I quickly realized the stupidity of my earlier choice. And so for some it goes. Outward ugliness is automatically judged to mean the inner value of the thing being considered is also ugly and thus worthless. And for others, outward beauty is automatically judged to mean the inner value of the thing being considered is also beautiful and thus priceless. But regardless of one's perspective, certain assumptions are being made that the external appearance directly correlates to, reflects, and originates from the internal nature and qualities of the thing or person in question, which is actually not the case. Now, the point of the line of thought is not to delve into a philosophical argument about the nature and laws that govern beauty or goodness, but to simply say this, and it's a tough truth, we humans are impressionable, we're superficial, we're easily deceived, and we're also judgmental, regardless of when and where we've lived. This was certainly true about Old Testament Israel, especially during the time period of the judges. 
You see, the final verse of Judges captures that, that reality in this following verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The problem is there actually was a king of Israel. It's just not a human king. You see, Yahweh was actually Israel's king. Unfortunately, Israel lived as though he wasn't their king, or at least not one that was acceptable to them. And that's actually the theological point that the author of Judges was making as he commented on their moral degradation. But not only did Israel live as though Yahweh wasn't their king, they outright rejected him as their ruler at all. And that's evident in 1 Samuel 8 when the elders asked for a human one. They said this to Samuel, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then God responded, the Lord said to Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. These passages underscore Israel's book-judging moral condition, as well as the context for David's rise. You see, Israel was not satisfied with Yahweh as their king. Instead, they wanted a king that outwardly reflected that which the rest of the nations possessed, despite any internal shortcomings from those men. They wanted something they could physically see, something they could physically touch. After all, the ancient Near East was visually and physically oriented, hence the need for idols and worship. But Israel also struggled with such things, the desire for idols for worship and even to have a flesh and blood ruler. And so they wrongly prioritized the outward appearance. Now, unfortunately, my brothers and sisters, just like the Israelites, we also wrongly prioritize the outward appearance. Instead of valuing the inner character of the individual or the thing being considered or in question, we often see and live as the world sees and lives, and thus value the outward appearance of things instead of what the Lord values, which is the heart. It's the heart that the Lord values. And if this is something that you've noticed about yourself or about others, well, then this sermon is for you. But what is our starting point, Jeff? Where do we begin? Well, I have two gospel truths I want to share with you this morning, two points that I want to communicate, and the first one is this. Since man looks at the outward appearance, we are often grieved, fearful, and rash. Look again at verse 1. It states, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? You know, every time I read this verse, I actually feel really bad for Samuel. You see, he was not only God's prophet, but he was also God's kingmaker. And this kingmaker was told by God to actually obey the voice of the people, despite his own displeasure regarding their request. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this displeasure was, it was not only tied to Israel's rejection of God as king, but I imagine in anticipation of all the problems this new monarchy would create that Samuel himself had to warn them about. Problems such as having the men conscripted into the army, daughters being taken away to serve in the royal palace, land, grain, and servants, and livestock being reallocated, stolen from the people. But if Samuel was displeased, and if he anticipated that this wouldn't go well, then why was he even grieving over Saul? Like, what's the point? 
He should have been rejoicing at this rejection, right? Well, I think there are two reasons why he's grieving. First, Saul fits the profile for the kind of person you would want as an ancient Near Eastern king. In fact, Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, says this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Zoror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Athia, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. From this description, we see that Saul, he comes from a notable family. He's wealthy, he's good-looking, and he's physically impressive. Politically speaking, a notable family means Saul is well-connected. Economically speaking, having wealth means Saul has vast resources. Militarily speaking, an impressive stature means Saul that he could fight off Israel's enemies. Saul's got it all, baby. So even when Samuel was initially hesitant, even though he knew Israel rejected God, and even though he was aware of the potential pitfalls of kingship, I think deep down inside, Samuel might have thought, hmm, this, this might actually work after all. I mean, look at Saul, he's tall. And this is exactly what Samuel focused on during Saul's coronation ceremony in chapter 10, verse 24. He says this, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There's not a man like him among all the people. But in reality, this was not the Lord's man after all. God just acquiesced to his people's request. Second, Samuel had a hand in anointing and installing this man as king, as well as teaching and guiding him. He taught him about the commandments and the will of God, at least he thought he was. Surely Saul would be the king the people needed since Samuel the prophet was on the job. And so maybe Samuel's grief stemmed from his own perceived failure. Maybe he thought he failed in his prophetic office because he couldn't keep Saul in the straight and narrow. Maybe he felt responsible. But whatever the reason, Samuel grieved because the man Israel chose, the man he shepherded, the man who possessed all the external qualities needed to be a good king, ended up being a bad king. And why is that? Why did Saul end that way? Because Saul was not sensitive to God's will, nor obedient to God's word. Instead, he disobeyed God and he broke all his laws. And you can read about that in the middle sections of 1 Samuel chapters 13 through 15. Ultimately, Saul's rule was a failure because of his internal shortcomings, not his external. He was a failure because he wasn't a man with a heart for God, nor for the things of God. This is why Samuel, this is why he was immediately fearful, despite God's encouragement, to just move on from Saul in verse 2, and why the elders of Bethlehem were afraid when Samuel arrived in verse 4. Their fear about anointing a new king, it wasn't so much about the fact that God changed his mind, but they knew that Saul would not accept God's will. But in God's kingdom, there, there really shouldn't have been any reason for this fear. Had Saul been walking with the Lord as he was supposed to, then any change in leadership, any change in Saul's fortunes, it should have been met in theory, it should have been accepted and obeyed by Saul. 
Because remember, if you think of the backdrop of Judges, it's the Lord who is ultimately Israel's king. And it's the Lord who can do whatever he so chooses with his servants, including King Saul. But this is what happens when you prioritize form over substance, when you esteem external qualities over the heart. And so Israel is reaping the whirlwind because they rejected Yahweh as their king and chose a man who did not have a heart like God or for God. But you know, to be fair, to be fair to Saul, it's never easy to receive that kind of news and rejection, right? Because we all know what it feels like to be passed over. We know what it like, feels like to fail. We know what it feels like to be found wanting, to not be enough, to be judged. We kind of know what it's like to be in Saul's shoes, even though we've never been king. But the unwillingness to accept things, whether it's constructive criticism from a spouse, to re be replaced in one's job by a coworker, or to be held accountable by a friend because of your sins, it's really a commentary about your own nature, your own heart, your own walk with God, and it has anything to do with the actual circumstances. It's a spiritual issue, and a person's unwillingness to follow, trust, and obey God whenever or wherever he leads. But you know, God also understands this, my friends. He knows it's hard for us to follow him. This is why he ends up providing Samuel with an out. He gives them this plan of a sacrificial ruse in verses 2 through 5. And so the Lord is merciful because he meets them in their need, where they're at, just as he does with us. God knows they will not anoint the man he chose, he chose for himself unless they have plausible deniability, unless they know they're protected. But despite this kindness, Samuel is still only willing to trust God so far. Why? Because he is still not seeing properly. He is still making judgments based on the outward appearance, and he is still seeking to fix the problem on his own terms instead of waiting on God. And so then he acts rashly, abruptly. Look at verse 6. When they, and that's referring to Jesse and his seven sons, come, he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before this one, now, I don't know about you, but every time I read this verse, this old adage pops into my head. It goes like this. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And then I, I thought to myself, what, what is Samuel thinking? I mean, Eliab, he must have been an impressive specimen for Samuel and the elders of Bethlehem to be willing to make the same mistake that the Benjaminites made with Saul. I imagine Eli was probably 6'3 and 225 pounds. He was a talker, man of social grace, probably had excellent taste in cologne and could tell you the subtle differences between single and double malt whiskey. Eli probably starred as the running back for the Bethlehem University team. In fact, he was probably a part of the all-Judean team. And he was probably crowned homecoming king and voted most likely to succeed by his peers. But while Samuel and the elders were, were mesmerized, God is not. The Lord can clearly see that this is not his man, nor are the other six sons that passed by Samuel in verse 10. 
And this leads us to our second and final point, my friends. And that is, since the Lord looks at the heart, we too are called to value that which God values himself. So look back at verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now you would, you would think Samuel and God's people would, would know this. I mean, after all, just do a brief survey of some of the men that were chosen by God up to this point in history. Abraham, old, childless, liar, becomes the father of nations. Jacob, second born, thief, deceiver, becomes father of the 12 tribes. Joseph, second youngest of 12, braggart, slave, becomes vizier, the second ruler of all of Egypt. Moses, a murdering, tongue-tied vagrant, becomes an Old Testament prophet. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff, well, how are they any different than Saul? Well, on one level, that's a natural question to ask. I mean, they're all failures. They're all sinners, just like Saul. But on another level, they are different. They are different because they respond to the Lord's call, obey his laws, and submit to his will over the full breadth of their lives, just like Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Unlike Saul, they kept on keeping on, but they were also different because they repented of their sins and rested in God. Unlike Saul, and you can read this in the pages of Scripture, at best, what he could muster was regret. That's why David was God's man and selected as the next king of Israel. And you can see this reality spread throughout David's rise in First and Second Samuel and with the Psalms that he himself penned. And we see this in this morning's passage as well. Look again at verses 11 and 12. They read, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Well, send and get him. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. I always love that description. On the surface, it seems like there's not much outward difference between Saul and David. I mean, they're both depicted as handsome. But there are, there are subtle differences between the description and their very telling. First, the Hebrew term for youngest can also be translated as smallest. But regardless of the rendering, David's stature, his position is totally opposite of Saul's, who was singled out for being head and shoulders above the rest. Second, David's ruddiness, his beautiful eyes, that actually denotes his youthfulness. But more than that, I think it actually denotes his spiritual vitality. Think of some of the other descriptions in Scripture that talk about eyes. Earlier in Samuel, in 1 Samuel 3, there's a description of the high priest Eli's eyes. It says that they are growing dim 
Also, Jacob's first wife, Leah, is said to have weak eyes. Those details are actually not commenting necessarily so much on the physical features, but on their spiritual blindness. So these physical descriptions are not just a commentary on David's outward appearance, but the author's attempt to use imagery and symbolism to communicate what David's heart is like inside. Likewise, additional accolades that, the, the additional accolades that, Skull, that Saul receives that pertain to his stature and family lineage and social standing, those are absent in David's description. This is important because any external physical qualities between Saul and David, they don't share and extend to those other areas. So David, at least on the surface, all he is is an eighth son nobody tending sheep. However, what is not said or left out is also just as important as what is included or how scripture contrasts the differences between Saul and David's actions, behaviors, and thoughts. For example, I find it wonderfully odd that David, as the youngest of eight, he actually listens to his father and stays behind. Though I never had a brother and I'm not the youngest, I've seen plenty of interactions with younger and older brothers. I've seen them here in this church. And I can tell you from my observation that younger brothers always want to go and do what the older brothers want to go and do. So the fact that David actually obeys Jesse and stays behind, that's an important detail. It communicates that David's heart is attentive, obedient, and sensitive to his earthly father's instruction and will. It also communicates that David, he didn't abandon the sheep. He actually stayed back to care for them. I think that's an important quality for the newly anointed king who's going to take care of a whole nation. Ironically, the episode immediately following Saul's own anointing in 1 Samuel 9 talks about how he can't find his father's lost donkeys and he gives up. So much irony in the comparison between these two men. You know, this passage, I, I actually find tremendous hope, a lot of hope. I find hope because it tells me that God can use the nobodies of Scripture to accomplish his purposes, and that he also can use the nobodies of our time period to build Christ's church. You see, my friends, you're valuable to God, despite what characteristics or gifts you have or do not have what position or status you have or do not have, or whatever untapped potential you may or may not utilize. So apart from what you do or you do not do, you are still valuable to God. You are still important to God. And God still has plans and a calling for your life. But ultimately what God cares more about than anything else is his relationship with you he cares that you follow, that you trust, that you obey him. He cares that you desire what he desires and that you hate what he hates. And he cares that you have his heart within your heart. This is why the crux of the passage in verse 13 speaks of God's spirit rushing upon David. While the anointing sets David apart for the office of king, it is the rushing of the spirit of the Lord upon David that preserves, protects, seals, and softens his heart that makes and keeps his heart after God's own heart. Yet, my friends, even despite all of the excellent qualities that David had, all of his excellent internal qualities, 
At the end of the day, he was still a sinner and in need of salvation. He was still a man in need of his Lord. That is why in Matthew 22, which Dr. Wenzel read, Jesus actually quotes David in response to the Pharisees by saying, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord. David knows that he needs the Lord. And so David was ultimately only a type. He was a foreshadowing, a picture of the one to come, the one who truly embodied God's heart, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He had no form. He had no majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom med men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's Isaiah 53. That's a description of the men of scripture that are called. Jesus was the ultimate example of not judging a book by its cover. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, had nothing about him physically, nothing about his outward appearance that was worth paying attention to, and yet he was lovely and beautiful. How do we know that? Because he attracted the lowest of the low, second-class citizens, the dregs of Jewish society, kids, sinners, women, everybody that was an outcast, the sick. His heart must have been exquisite. It must have radiated beyond the description that we read in Isaiah 53. This man had no outward form or appearance of any worth, but yet he attracted everyone to himself. And so, beloved, if you want to know what God's heart truly looks like, look to Jesus Christ. Look to his life. Look to his death. Look to his resurrection. And you will see that the heart of God is actually found in a person, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so to have a heart that values the things of God, to have a heart after God's own heart, you need the living Christ within you. You need him. So call out to him today, and he will answer you. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we, we come before you and acknowledge our need for you. Lord, we confess our sin before you. We ask that you, as your people, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us your heart, and that we would radiate that to a world that is watching, Father. Make us like your Son. Make us beautiful on the inside. And Lord, through that, may the nations exalt your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.